Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormady, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to Episode 9 of Cosmic Controversy. Today's guest is Anthony Brown, an associate professor of astronomy at Leiden University in the Netherlands and a key player in the European Space Agency's $750 million Gaia satellite, which first saw launch in 2013. Brown currently chairs the Gaia Data Processing and Analysis Consortium, a team of about 450 European astronomers and IT specialists in charge of turning the raw measurements from the Gaia spacecraft into a three-dimensional map of over one billion stars in our Milky Way galaxy. Today, Brown joins us from the Netherlands. Anthony, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Thanks. Uh, glad to be here. So the, I think we, you and I first met uh, at a 1997 conference on the Hipparchus mission in Venice. And then uh, more recently, a couple of years uh, ago, at Estec in the Netherlands for a symposium honoring Roger Bonnet. So bottom line is you have been uh, involved in both of these missions uh, for basically the past 20-something years. Yeah, Gaia for uh, over 20 years now. Uh, so my involvement started uh, around the time I was working on the analysis of, uh, of Hipparchus uh, data. So I was working... Uh, with Michael Perryman, the Hipparchus project scientist, on an analysis of the Hyades uh, cluster. Uh, and from there, my involvement in the Gaia mission started more or less in uh, in 97. If you could give the uh, listener kind of a, a thumbnail sketch of the, uh, the of the Gaia observatory, what is it? What is it doing? And, and how, do your, how does your team analyze the data? Yeah, so the uh, main goal of Gaia is to uh, provide essentially a census of uh, the stars in the Milky Way. Well, a small fraction thereof, but still representative of uh, of, of the entire Milky Way uh, stellar population. So well over uh, a billion stars. And what Gaia measures of these stars is uh, repeatedly the position on the sky. So uh, it uh, repeatedly measures uh, every star and very, very precisely pinpoints where they are in the sky. And by doing this, you can, over the course of time, uh, figure out what the distances are to the stars, as well as how they move through space. Um, in addition, uh, Gaia also collects information that we that allows us to characterize the stars astrophysically. So we measure their colors, which allows us to infer things like uh, their uh, properties, such as temperature, uh, but also their ages, uh, even their chemical composition. Um, and we also have an instrument on board that allows us to measure how fast the star is moving in the line of sight, whether it's coming towards us or moving away from us and at what speed. And the, these instruments together then give essentially a, a complete uh, picture of, of every star. So we know all the fundamental parameters of these stars. And this allows us to uh, make many uh, studies uh, touching on essentially every field of, uh, of astronomy. Tell the listener how you would go about, for instance, a well-known star like Betelgeuse in Orion. Um, how would you measure its distance? How would you measure its proper motion? Yeah, so um, the idea is that uh, Gaia, like the Earth, is in orbit around the sun. Uh, 
Um, and the stars, as seen from Gaia or from Earth, let's stick to Earth for uh, for for um, to, for ease of comprehension. Uh, as we orbit the sun, uh, the vantage point that from which we look to the stars changes over the course of a year, uh, and that means that the stars all exhibit a slight uh, wobble in their position on the sky, and that's simply a uh, reflection of the fact that we are going uh, around the sun and changing our perspective. And by measuring the size of this wobble, we can uh, figure out uh, a geometric distance to the star. Uh, and it's essentially a bit like uh, land surveying, uh, but then applied to, uh, to the skies. And this is uh, the, uh, essentially the only uh, direct means that we have to access the distances to the stars, so without uh, making any assumptions about the properties of the stars. Now, by measuring the, in order to do this, you need to measure the positions of the stars uh, repeatedly over the course of at least a year. Gaia will measure uh, over the course of uh, up to 10 years. Uh, and by doing this, you will also notice that the star has an average displacement on the sky. So it's not only the wobble caused by us going around the sun, but also the star's actual motion through space. The fact that it's moving with respect to us uh, is reflected in an average motion on the sky, which we call the uh, proper motion. And the proper motions, for example, are what cause the uh, constellations uh, on the sky to slowly change uh, shape over the course of time. So you have to wait quite some, uh, quite a while to see to see the changes. Uh, but all stars do uh, do move, and uh, and that's what Gaia measures. And so the the uh, measuring the distance is measuring what astronomers call term the parallax, and the the uh, proper motion is a motion of the star as it goes across our line of sight on the sky. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. And then the position is a bit. Uh, that's a bit tricky. How do you how do you actually determine the position of the? So what Gaia does is it carries uh, two telescopes uh, on board that look at uh, uh, two two separate uh, fields of view on the sky, separated by an angle of about uh, 100 degrees, so quite widely uh, separated. Um, and what we do is we image the uh, the stars uh, uh, from these two fields of view on the same focal plane. And in that focal plane, we can then measure the angles between the stars. And by adding this large, what we call basic angle, we create a, a network of uh, measurements of angles between stars on the sky. Uh, and when you have covered the whole sky, you can actually reconstruct very accurately uh, the positions of all the stars with respect to, to each other. And this gives a very um, uh, rigid way of, of determining uh, stellar positions or directions on the, on the sky. Um, and in the end, uh, the only thing we need to do is to use um, extragalactic objects like quasars uh, to fix the orientation of this uh, celestial sphere that we construct by these relative measurements. And, these, um, and, and that, these quasars are just so distant that they really basically appear fixed in our field of view. Is that right? That's, that's right. That's the idea is that uh, they form a fixed uh, reference frame. Um, and so by knowing which of the objects that we observe are quasars, we can actually in the end uh, take the uh, celestial sphere that we have constructed in our, our data reduction and orient it correctly uh, with respect to, uh, to reality. And the quasar, uh, just for a parenthetical definition of a quasar for people who are not familiar with that term. Uh, so uh, quasars are uh, galaxies at uh, very very uh, far away, uh, billions of, uh, of light years uh, removed from us. 
um, and they harbor a, a supermassive black hole, uh, which is accreting uh, large amounts of gas and thereby um, uh, releasing enormous amounts of energy. And that makes these objects appear uh, relatively very bright uh, on the on the sky. Uh, but because the energy comes from a very small region, they look like uh, points, uh, so they don't look like galaxies, they look like stars. And that's also where the name quasar comes from, which stands for a quasi-stellar object, essentially. But uh, unlike uh, our own Milky Way galaxy, which also has a, a supermassive black hole at its center, uh, Sag A-star, uh, which is relatively quiescent, these are younger active galactic nuclei. Is that correct, the quasars? Yes. Okay. Yes, that, that's right. Yeah. So our, our galaxy has a relatively small uh, massive black hole in the center, a few million uh, solar masses. Uh, but you can have black holes going out to uh, up to a billion uh, solar masses, and uh, in our case, um, the uh, the black hole is is not so active in the sense that there is not much uh, uh, gas being accreted onto it at the moment. So we don't really see much uh, uh, energy coming out of that region. And so the Gaia spacecraft began taking science observations, began conducting science observations, in actually 2014. It launched in 2013. Uh, when did it actually start doing science? Was it 2014? Yes, so uh, it launched in December 2013. It took a few weeks to uh, to get to its uh, point uh, around the second, the second Lagrange point uh, of the Earth-Sun system, which it's orbiting. And that point itself goes around the Sun, so that's how Gaia orbits the Sun. And it's about one and a half million kilometers away uh, from the Earth. And once it arrived there, we had to check out all the systems, make sure that everything was working correctly. Uh, we had to sort out a few um, technical uh, problems uh, in the first uh, months. And then in uh, July of 2014, everything was ready to start the uh, science observations. And so uh, it's an all-sky survey or... Yeah, so the, so the um, uh, as I said before, it has two telescopes that are looking at two uh, lines of sight separated by about 100 degrees on the sky. Um, but what the uh, spacecraft does is that it continuously uh, spins around an axis perpendicular to the lines of sight of these two telescopes. So every six hours, Gaia scans a great circle on the sky. And what we do is we also move the uh, spin axis of the spacecraft in such a way that in a few months' time you can cover uh, the whole sky. And this is then done repeatedly over the course of the mission. And that means that on average, over about five years, we observe every star on the sky uh, 70 times, uh, where, where the number of observations varies uh, depending on uh, precisely where you are in the sky. But on average, every star is observed about 70 times over five years. And what, uh, what is the nearest star? I mean, what is the range of distance? So. What is the depth of field? So, in other words, you, the nearest star would be potentially the uh, Proxima Centauri, uh, our nearest star over, over. But then, what is how deep do you go in your depth of field uh, when doing these surveys? Yeah, so so Gaia essentially measures um, everything that is that is brighter than about magnitude uh, twenty. So uh, that's uh, let's say almost uh, a million times fainter than you can see with the naked eye, um, and that means that uh, we can see sources uh, very nearby, like Proxima Centauri, which is only a few light years away, 
but we also see stars in the Andromeda Nebula, which is 2 million light years away. And of course, we also see the quasars, which are even further away. Um, and we cover essentially uh, all the distance ranges in our Milky Way, uh, really only being limited uh, by um, things like dust, for example, getting in the way so we cannot see the stars uh, behind it. Uh, but essentially, we, we, we go deep enough that we can cover the whole uh, Milky Way. Um, and even closer to home, we also observe solar system objects. So uh, these are uh, asteroids in our own solar system, which are also passing uh, uh, along our, uh, the fields of view of the telescopes. And they're also essentially point-like. And so we, it, they get automatically picked up by Gaia and observed as well. Why is this survey important for astronomy? Um, the, the survey provides uh, fundamental data for uh, the stars. So the, the things you really want to know are how far away is the star so that you can make an, an, an accurate estimate of how bright, for example, it really is. Uh, and we want to know how the stars move and we want to know the stars' properties. Now, the combination of... Uh, so, so if you know the 3D positions of the stars, which we can figure out from the distance plus their direction of the sky, we can map the uh, structure of our Milky Way. And when we combine that with the uh, motions of the stars and their properties, such as their ages, we can actually do things like figuring out the uh, formation history uh, of the Milky Way, how it was built up over the course of time. And this is one of the central goals um, of the mission. But once you have these very fundamental data, uh, there is almost no field in astronomy that doesn't uh, benefit from it. So. Uh, for example, uh, cosmological applications will benefit by the from the fact that we can now accurately calibrate the uh, distance scale uh, for things like Cepheid uh, variables, which are used to estimate distances to um, other galaxies. Um, and also the uh, learning more about uh, the stars themselves by uh, examining their distribution uh, over brightness and color and comparing that to what we predict from our uh, models and uh, if once the data becomes more and more precise, more and more accurate, uh, we will see the discrepancies with our models and learn more about uh, the stars themselves. And there is many, many examples. So uh, basically every field in astronomy uh, will, will benefit from this, from this mission. What part of the Milky Way are we actually mapping? Okay, so, so the, the way this uh, creating this 3D picture works is that uh, instead of just taking a, a single photograph of the sky showing uh, the stars at their various brightnesses and colors. Uh, because we're measuring the stars repeatedly over time, we can figure out with this parallax technique how far away they are. And that allows us to put the third dimension into, uh, into this picture. The area of the Milky Way that we're uh, mapping, if you uh, imagine yourself looking from the top down on the Milky Way, so you have the Milky Way center, uh, surrounded by the, uh, the disk of the Milky Way with the spiral arms in it. Um, and around the position uh, of the Sun uh, is, of course, where we, we will see uh, most of the stars, simply because most stars are relatively faint, so they need to be fairly close by for us to see them. But we are mapping uh, in very great detail the 3D structure uh, of about uh, the nearest, say, uh, 5,000 parsecs, so about 15,000 uh, light years uh, radius around the sun. So that's a fairly large uh, chunk of our uh, Milky Way disk. 
But in fact, Gaia can reach um, all across the Milky Way, depending on the type of star you're looking at. If stars are intrinsically very bright, you can see them uh, much further away and still measure their uh, distance. But the bulk of the stars uh, will be uh, in the area, say, between the Sun and the Milky Way center and also towards the, uh, towards the other uh, end of the, sorry, towards the, what we call the anti-center, uh, so uh, 180 degrees away from uh, the direction to, to our center. Um, and as I said, in a radius of, say, roughly 15,000 to 20,000 light years around the sun is where we will get a very accurate picture uh, in three dimensions of the, uh, of the structure of the Milky Way. And the, uh, have you gotten a better idea of the diameter of the Milky Way? Yeah, I, I think uh, that is one of the uh, still open points that has to be done with Guy is figuring out the distribution, uh, the detailed distribution of stars uh, in space and the length scale of the, uh, of, of the Milky Way uh, disk. Um, and this is something that uh, requires us to understand much better uh, how complete Gaia has been in its measurements. So how many stars did it uh, measure uh, with respect to the actual uh, stellar population? And you need to know this in order to make a statistically correct reconstruction of the uh, of the extent of the Milky Way uh, itself. Um, and that's that is actually still uh, an open point. It's a rather uh, it, it sounds very simple. You've you've measured things in three dimensions, so you should be able to figure out uh, the uh, uh, the size and everything. But because we know our measurements are incomplete, because we can only go out to a certain uh, apparent brightness limit. This makes directly estimating these uh, sizes in a statistically robust manner not so not so easy to do. Um, One hundred fifty thousand light years or something is is a reasonable number. Um, and uh, your own spacecraft is currently operational and on orbit at the L two, which is a, a gravitationally stable point. Can you explain the L two? Yeah, so um, if you look very simply at the, uh, the Sun-Earth system, then uh, you can imagine that between the Earth and the Sun, there is a point where the gravitational tug of the Earth is about as strong as the gravitational tug of the Sun. And this is what we call the L1 point, the first Lagrange point. Now, there is a second uh, uh, point uh, symmetrically opposite on the opposite side of the Earth, so let's say towards the outer solar system, which is uh, called L2, and it's about one and a half million kilometers away uh, from the Earth. Um, and if you put an object there, uh, it would normally uh, drift away uh, from this point because it's not, um, in, in that sense, it's not uh, stable. But you can use it as a as a reference to uh, have satellites orbit uh, around this point. And uh, for example, the uh, James Webb Space Telescope will also go there. Uh, but also things like uh, the Planck mission and WMAP have orbited this uh, particular uh, point. Um, and Gaia is also using that. And it's uh, it, it forms a very um, stable environment for us to operate in away from the influences uh, of the Earth, where if you orbit around the Earth, you have to worry about... Uh, uh, the effects of, uh, um, if you get close to the Earth, radiation belts or eclipses uh, by the Earth, the Sun, etc. And we're free from all of that where, where Gaia is sitting. So it's uh, it's a very nice environment for, for um, astronomical observatories. And uh, you are observing primarily in the optical? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so what are the, some of the biggest surprises? We've, you've had three data drops, uh, 
data release one, data release two, and we're actually two data drops, and we're waiting on data data uh, release uh, three. So in data release one, can you kind of give give us a, a bit of some of the scientific highlights? Yeah. So in uh, in, in data release uh, one, um, I have to think back uh, a little bit. It seems it seems already quite uh, quite a while ago. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, the, the, there the, the, the big jump uh, forward was uh, going from uh, the Hipparchus mission uh, data we had at, up to that point, which uh, consisted of about 120,000 stars with accurately measured uh, parallaxes and proper motions. And that went up to, uh, in the first instance, 2 million uh, stars with such measurements in, uh, in Gaia Data Release 1. Uh, even uh, because even though it contained uh, over a billion stars already, uh, for most stars at that point we only provided the position on the sky, not yet the parallax and the proper motion. But for a subset of those stars, for two million of them, we were able to do this by actually combining the Gaia measurements with the earlier Hipparchus ones, and in that way uh, allowing us to uh, construct the parallax and proper motion for those two million stars. Um, and that already uh, led to, through to, to, to many uh, uh, studies of the uh, of the solar neighborhood that could be done in uh, much more uh, detail than uh, than was possible uh, before that time. Um, one example was that people were looking for so-called uh, hypervelocity stars already with the uh, first uh, Gaia data release, and a few uh, candidates were were found. And these are stars that are moving uh, very rapidly with respect to, uh, uh, well, to, to, to the Milky Way. So they are moving at speeds of uh, up to 1,000 kilometers per second through the Milky Way, uh, which means that they're so fast that they will eventually escape from our, our galaxy. Um, and, they, and these stars are thought to originate uh, or have been predicted to originate from the central region of our Milky Way, where the supermassive black hole every now and then it can disrupt a binary star that comes too close, where one of the stars will be uh, eaten up essentially by the black hole and the other will be shot out of the uh, of the Milky Way. Um, and so studying these stars is a very interesting way of learning more about the environment of the supermassive black hole. But they can also be used to trace things like the, the, the total mass uh, uh, of, the, of the Milky Way, the, the Milky Way shape and the, and of the, the shape of the dark matter halo. So this is one of the topics that uh, a lot of people uh, jumped on. Um, uh, another uh, application that I really liked, which was a bit uh, unexpected, at least for me, was that um, the, the, we, we measure stars repeatedly in, uh, in Ga with Gaia, which means you can also see that they change brightness over time. And in the first data release, we had put out a very small catalog of a few thousand stars that were known to be variable. and we provided the so-called light curve, so the, the measurements of the brightness as a function of time. Um, but you can also figure out for all the other stars by looking at the um, errors that we quote on their brightnesses. You can figure out which ones are actually likely to be variable stars, even though we hadn't yet uh, explicitly told anyone whether or not the star was uh, changing brightness. And by using this trick, um, a group in Cambridge was capable of uh, mapping out the uh, large and small Magellanic cloud in terms of these variable stars. And they uh, nicely saw that there was a, a bridge of stars actually between the two uh, clouds, showing that there's a real uh, connection between these two dwarf galaxies. This is one of the really 
nice unanticipated um, applications, uh, which you could always get when you do these new, large, very precise uh, surveys. And just for the listener, the large and the small Magellanic clouds are two small galaxies that are only that you can really only see from the uh, uh, from the southern hemisphere. Yes, these are two uh, what we call dwarf uh, galaxies, so they're very much smaller than the than the Milky Way. Um, and uh, I think the common consensus is now that uh, these are uh, dwarf galaxies that are being captured uh, by our uh, own uh, galaxy. And so they will eventually end up orbiting uh, the Milky Way. But we believe that they are just now in the process of being uh, captured, uh, which is also one of the things that uh, is being learned from the, from the Gaia data itself in much more detail than was, uh, than was possible uh, before. And the, the study of these galaxies um, is, is important uh, for, for several reasons. Uh, one is that uh, uh, they have been used in the past and are still being used as, uh, as one of the anchors in the calibration of the distance scale of the entire uh, universe. So uh, with Gaia in principle, we can do a much better job uh, at, uh, at figuring out their distances. Um, they're interesting to study by themselves by, uh, in the sense of how, how does a one of these dwarf galaxies form. Uh, how, how, how does the evolution, evolutionary histories of these uh, galaxies uh, progress? And this will teach us a bit more about uh, how, how galaxies formed in the past in general. Um, and they're also important in the sense that they affect what happens in the, in the Milky Way. And uh, they only lie about 140,000 light years away. Yeah, yeah. So the large Magellanic cloud is, uh, yeah, it's at about 150,000 uh, uh, light years, yes. What about the Aparcos uh, data? Because we, you touched on that. Uh, I remember from that conference in Venice in 97 that there was a controversy about the distance of Polaris. Now, Polaris is an interesting story. Uh, so Polaris uh, is also a binary star, apart from being variable. And Polaris A, the one that you can see with the, with the naked eye, is actually too bright uh, for Gaia. So uh, we cannot really measure stars very well brighter than about magnitude 6. We are taking special measures on board the spacecraft to, to ensure that we can go down uh, all the way to, uh, to Sirius. But this cannot be automatically uh, treated in our, in our data processing. So it will take a while for results from, for example, Polaris A uh, to come out. But the uh, companion, Polaris B, can be measured uh, by Gaia. Uh, and that is uh, not, still a relatively bright star at magnitude 8.5 or so, but it's, uh, it's uh, faint enough that Gaia can easily measure it. Um, and for that one, we, uh, we find the same distance as Hipparchus did. So in that sense, uh, the controversy seems uh, resolved. And this is consistent in both the first and the second Gaia data release. Can you tell us a bit about how you became involved with Hipparchus uh, and and your project back in the day? Yeah, so the I, I started my PhD in uh, 1991, and it was on a project uh, which was um, advertised to uh, for, for using uh, Hipparchus data. Uh, and this was a project on uh, OB associations. And these are uh, young groups of, uh, of stars uh, dominated visually by, by very bright O and B uh, stars, hence the name. Um, and they can teach us more about the uh, star formation, recent star formation history in the solar neighborhood. So that's why they're interesting to study. Now, uh, by the time I had finished my thesis, the Hipparchus catalog was not yet uh, public. 
Um, but then uh, I got the chance to work on the uh, Hyades cluster uh, uh, together with the uh, Hipparchus uh, project scientist. Um, and uh, so that work started in uh, in '96. And so the Hyades is a uh, older cluster, uh, uh, about 650 million years old, which is quite close uh, to the sun. Um, it's uh, about uh, 150 uh, light years away from us. Um, and in fact, you can see some of its stars if you look uh, at the constellation of, uh, of Taurus. So uh, the head of the bull, uh, part of the stars are, are uh, in, in, the, uh, in the Hyades uh, cluster. And this cluster is, uh, was always a textbook example of why you need um, to measure the proper motions of stars. Because if you look at it on the sky, you do, cannot see a concentration of stars, unlike the Pleiades, which is fairly close to the Hyades on the sky, where you can really see a concentration of stars that looks like a cluster. But in the case of the Hyades, you can only see it by looking at the motions of the stars and noticing that there is a group of stars that are all moving in exactly uh, the same direction. That's how it was identified as a, as a cluster. And this cluster has traditionally also been very important in uh, calibrating the uh, the distance scale. So the, the, the one of the things you can do to estimate distances to stars is to look for these, uh, these uh, clusters like the Hyades. And there, if you make a diagram of the brightness of the star as a function of its color, you will see that the stars all line up on the so-called uh, main sequence, which is uh, where the stars uh, spend most of their uh, lives. And you can use the location of this main sequence uh, and the, the brightness of it to estimate the, uh, the distances to, uh, to these clusters, if you think you know what the intrinsic uh, luminosities of the stars uh, are. Um, and the latter part, the intrinsic luminosities, can of course be calibrated if you have the distance measured to at least uh, a few of those clusters. And Hyades was one of the nearer ones where you could do these uh, types of uh, distance measurements by uh, employing actually the uh, proper motions. Um, and hence, it's always been an important uh, part in calibrating our distance scale. So that's what, also why it was very interesting to look at this with, uh, with the Hipparchus mission. So you can now do uh, much more detailed studies of the cluster uh, as, as a cluster. So uh, it's, not, it's no longer uh, that important anymore for calibrating the uh, distance scale because we can essentially, thanks to Gaia, skip this, this, uh, this step in the distance ladder. Okay, uh, but it's it's still interesting to study it as a as a cluster to understand how these systems form, how they evolve over the course of time, and Gaia can reach many uh, open clusters. In fact, with the second Gaia data release, we've discovered hundreds of new uh, open clusters uh, within a few um, thousand parsecs around the sun. So so within say ten thousand light years around the sun. And, uh, of course, uh, making comparative studies of all these clusters uh, teaches us even more about how these systems form and evolve over the course of time. And uh, so do you have a, is this, is a guy on a 10-year uh, nominal mission, are you going to extend it for any length of time or is this, is this it? No, so so um, Gaia has actually already ended its uh, nominal mission lifetimes, which was which was uh, planned for five years. So the uh, the formal end of the mission was uh, July last year, uh, but already then we had uh, decided to uh, go for an extension of the mission, and we are aiming for a ten-year mission. So we ending uh, at the end of 2024. 
Um, and there are a few uh, formalities that we have to uh, go through in order to get the permission uh, to do this. And of course, you need continued funding, etc. So it's not entirely trivial. But from the point of view of the spacecraft uh, health, um, it's perfectly uh, doable. And in fact, the only limitation we have is that Gaia has um, onboard uh, micro thrusters, which are um, which use up uh, uh, cold gas as a fuel. Uh, and these are um, there to maintain very accurately the um, the spin rate of the spacecraft. Uh, so that needs to be very precisely set. Um, and once we run out of fuel for this system, which is predicted to happen at the end of 2024, we can no longer make sharp images uh, of stars on the sky. And that means we can no longer do the uh, astrometry. And that's, uh, that's a natural end uh, to the mission. Okay. Now you can ask why uh, would you go on longer? Uh, and the main reason is that uh, by doubling the mission lifetime, uh, of course, you increase the precision of all the measurements because you collect more data on each uh, star. But in particular, for the proper motions, you gain a lot because the longer you measure, uh, the, the more accurate the proper motions become because your time baseline becomes uh, much longer. Um, and, then, and in fact, we're gaining uh, about a factor of three in precision of proper motions by doubling the uh, mission lifetime. And the other advantage is that, for example, if you're looking at uh, stars that are uh, binaries, so two stars orbiting each other, um, and if you only see one of the uh, two components of the star, then if you measure its proper motion over a short amount of time, you might get it wrong because you see part not only the motion of the binary system, but also the orbital motion of the star you're looking at. And by extending the time baseline, you can average out over these effects and just make the uh, measurement of proper motions of stellar systems uh, more accurate. Um, the other reason to extend the coverage is that we can then uh, discover many more planets with Gaia than, uh, than were predicted for the five-year mission. Uh, so we can, for the five-year mission, uh, the prediction is that we will see about 20,000 exoplanets with Gaia. Uh, but if we extend to 10 years, it might go up to even 70,000. So that's an enormous uh, gain in, uh, in, in numbers. Um, and so there's, there's a, a couple of uh, good reasons to really to, uh, to go on with the, uh, with the mission. And what is the minimum mass uh, the, of the exoplanets that you've been able to detect? In other words, are you detecting massive Jupiter-sized planets, or are you actually detecting uh, um, terrestrial mass planets? No, Gaia can go down to Jupiter mass uh, planets. And uh, so, so that it's not sensitive enough to go uh, uh, to, to much lighter uh, planets. Uh, but what Gaia brings in uh, terms of exoplanets is that it's able to survey all uh, stellar types. And it surveys the whole sky, so it gets a much more complete census of uh, the the, uh, the Jupiter size and up uh, upwards uh, planets. Um, and these uh, are interesting because it might well be that the presence of something like Jupiter uh, is needed to create um, habitable uh, planet systems. We don't really know yet whether whether this is the case, but it will be very um, important to have these statistics not only uh, of the terrestrial size planets, which are for good reasons are extremely interesting to look at, but also to look at the wider context of planetary systems. And there you need uh, really need something like Gaia to do a relatively quick survey, uh, which is sensitive uh, to, to Jupiter mass planets around all types of stars over a large volume around the sun. And um, 
I noticed there was a press release, uh, I believe, from last year from the da- uh, data release too, uh, which uh, you know noted that the fact that the uh, Sagittarius dwarf galaxy may ha- is now thought to have uh, collided uh, with the, the Milky Way way back, um, some four point uh, maybe six billion years ago, and uh, it's thought that this collision created uh, gravitational ripples, which might have led to the formation of our own solar system some 4.6, 4.7 billion years ago. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, so I think this this is a very nice topic because uh, it touches on what I still think is the most um, spectacular result that came out of the uh, second Gaia data release. And uh, it's a result that came out already very quickly after the release, uh, within uh, a month or so. Uh, where uh, a, a group led by uh, Teresa Antosha in, in, in Barcelona um, uh, made a essentially they made a plot of the uh, speed at which stars are moving uh, up and down in the Milky Way disk, so in the vertical direction, perpendicular to the disk, um, as a function of their height above or below uh, the disk. And the naive expectation was that this would be a completely uninteresting plot, just a sort of even distribution of stars. But what they actually noticed is that there was a spiral shape um, in this plot. Uh, and the spiral shape became even stronger if you color-coded it with, other, uh, with, the, with the value of the other velocity components of the stars. And what this pointed to uh, immediately was that the Milky Way disk is not in equilibrium. It's not a, a relaxed system, but it had been disturbed relatively recently. And it was still sort of relaxing back to in, into its normal state. And this is uh, such spirals in, in these plots are, are, uh, are a hallmark of that. Um, and the Sagittarius dwarf galaxy, which uh, has been orbiting our Milky Way indeed for uh, the past uh, few billion years already, uh, was thought to be uh, responsible for this disturbance, where it recently passed uh, very close to the, uh, to the Milky Way disk in its orbit and thereby uh, the gravitational interaction between the Milky Way and this dwarf galaxy led to these, uh, to these ripples essentially in the Milky Way disk, which manifest themselves in, in, this, in this plot that I just uh, described. Um, and, it, and it was spectacular to me in the sense that uh, the first time uh, we, we looked at this, we thought, hmm, maybe we did something wrong in the, in the data processing because it was so unexpected, but there was no way you could figure out uh, uh, a data processing error that would have created this. So it was it must have it must be a real uh, feature, um, and it turned out to be this very interesting uh, consequence of the interaction with the Sagittarius dwarf. So now, very recently, uh, a group in the Canary Islands um, they uh, took the uh, a look at all the stars in the solar neighborhood. And they plotted a so-called Hertzsprung-Russell diagram, so where you have the absolute luminosity of the star as a function of its color. Um, and when you uh, employ stellar models, you can actually predict what this diagram should look like. But when you do this modeling of these diagrams, you have to take into account the fact that uh, over the course of time, uh, stars uh, uh, are born and they, are, and they die. And this, uh, what we call star formation history, uh, is one of the important ingredients in predicting what this uh, diagram of brightness versus color should look like. Um, and so you can use this basically to reverse engineer uh, how the star formation uh, has progressed over the course of time 
in the neighborhood, uh, in this neighborhood of the Milky Way uh, around the sun. And if you look at that star formation history, uh, you see that it starts out with a high star formation rate in the past, which is expected. Uh, we know that the uh, in the universe, uh, uh, the, the star formation peaked at some point a few billion years ago, and then it gradually started dropping off. This is what we see in all uh, galaxies. Um, so that was not uh, not a surprise. But what was interesting is that um, as this star formation rate started to drop, every now and then there's a peak where suddenly more stars are being formed. Now, if you compare the timing of those peaks to uh, the moments that this uh, Sagittarius dwarf galaxy passed close to uh, the Milky Way disk, uh, they seem to coincide. So this suggests strongly that the gravitational interaction between the Sagittarius dwarf and the Milky Way disk leads to episodes of enhanced uh, star formation. And one of those could have indeed coincided with the time that, uh, that the Sun was formed. So hence the connection between this uh, dwarf galaxy and the uh, history of our own solar system. And is the, uh, the Sagittarius uh, dwarf galaxy, so in other words, it, it's in continual orbit or continuous orbit rather around the Milky Way. And sometimes it comes uh, close enough to influence uh, uh, star formation? Uh, it does uh, punch through the uh, outer regions uh, of the disk. Um, and if you look at the uh, Sagittarius dwarf galaxy, at, at the core of the galaxy, you can already see that it's very stretched out, meaning that it's being uh, disrupted in the gravitational field of the Milky Way and, and being stretched out along its orbit. And in fact, you can, you can trace uh, members of the Sagittarius dwarf galaxy uh, all over the sky because the, it has orbited the Milky Way already uh, a couple of times. And everywhere along this orbit, you can find uh, the debris of stars that were basically ripped off the galaxy and are now uh, orbiting uh, more or less uh, on their own. And, and the core of this galaxy, as I said, clearly shows that it's being uh, distorted in the uh, gravitational field uh, of the Milky Way. So eventually, in many billions of years from now, uh, this galaxy will be swallowed up in the sense that, it, that we won't recognize it anymore as, a, as an entity, and you can only recognize the remnants by analyzing uh, the motions of the stars. But it was concentrated initially in the, the constellation of Sagittarius, and that's where it got its name? No, that's where it's presently uh, the largest concentration of stars of this galaxy is in the direction of Sagittarius, hence the name. Um, but originally uh, it came in from outside the Milky Way, uh, like the Magellanic clouds are, are coming in at this moment. Okay. And at that point it looked still like a compact uh, dwarf uh, galaxy. But right now it's stretched out uh, along its orbit. We didn't really discuss how you actually analyze the data. Uh, this is something that the, the layperson certainly would be interested in learning, is how you actually analyze data. Where do you actually start and... How long does that process take? Yeah, so the uh, the process uh, altogether is is quite long. So, for example, the uh, uh, we are coming up now on the third uh, Gaia data release, uh, which we are planning to release uh, later this year. But we already started the processing for that release in 2017. So it's been it's taken altogether uh, three years or so to uh, to complete that. Now, what we do, if we take the example of the um, uh, positional measurements of stars in the sky, so the astrometric measurements. Um, so Gaia uh, takes images uh, of the stars 
Um, and uh, what we do is we don't send out send down uh, the full um, CCD image that Gaia has on board, but only the few pixels around every star. And this is basically to compress the data that we send down. And essentially what we do is we take one of these stellar images and we very precisely uh, determine what the center of the image is. And this tells us, uh, together with information about how the spacecraft was oriented at that moment, and the timing of the measurement, it tells us where the star is uh, roughly uh, on the sky. So we can uh, figure figure out for all we can figure this out for all the stars. And what we then do is we uh, we put together um, all these uh, positional measurements, which are uh, relative, uh, essentially relative to other stars, into a big uh, mathematical solution. Um, which essentially models every star as a point on the sky, which has a certain direction at a moment in time, uh, but also has uh, a motion which is dictated by the motion of the Gaia around the sun, which is the parallax, as well as the proper motion of the star. And essentially we take all these individual measurements over the course of time when we model this with the parallax and the proper motion for every star, uh, and that allows us to, to figure out what is the parallax of a star, what is its, uh, its, its proper motion. Uh, but you have to imagine essentially a very large uh, system of equations that needs to be uh, solved for all these parameters for the um, individual stars. And this takes uh, a long time. And there's many other aspects in the data processing. For example, we also want to figure out what is the apparent brightness of the star. We do that by, again, analyzing that same image and figuring out how many uh, photons we received from the star. But we also have uh, two prisms on board that split the light into colors. Um, and that allows us to measure the astrophysical properties of the stars. But again, that requires very careful uh, reduction of the data. And the same holds true for the instrument uh, with which we measure the radial velocity of the star, so the motion in the line of sight. That is done by looking at the uh, spectra of stars, their absorption lines, and seeing how they move uh, in, in wavelengths. So the Doppler effect is used to, uh, to measure the radial velocity. Um, and then there are a couple of other analysis steps. For example, uh, we want to look for exoplanets or for binary stars. We want to analyze the way stars vary as a function of time. And we want to use the colors to, to characterize the stars in terms of what is their temperature, uh, what, are, what is their chemical composition, etc. Um, and all of these uh, steps really take uh, quite some time to, uh, to complete. So that's, uh, that's why any given release uh, can take years to, uh, to make. So how has uh, Gaia contributed to our understanding of the Milky Way's evolution? Or has it? Uh, it definitely has. So uh, one of the other uh, big results uh, coming out of uh, the analysis of, uh, of Gaia data um, is that the um, last time the Milky Way experienced a significant uh, merger was about 10 million years ago. Um, at that time, the Milky Way was still growing, so it was a lot smaller than it is now. And uh, it, uh, it collided with another galaxy, which was about a quarter of the size of the Milky Way. Um, and that the stars from that uh, other galaxy, which is called Gaia Enceladus, um, have been uh, essentially swallowed up uh, in the Milky Way and are spread out all over the Milky Way volume. But we can still trace them by analyzing uh, carefully the motions of the stars and also 
their um, uh, chemical uh, composition, which shows that they uh, have a different nature than the stars in the Milky Way itself, which allows us to conclude that it came from, from outside the Milky Way. So this was sort of the last big event in the history of the formation. But of course, subsequently, uh, other uh, uh, smaller galaxies have been absorbed by the Milky Way. For example, the Sagittarius dwarf galaxies in the process of being, of being uh, swallowed up. Um, and the other thing that Gaia has, uh, has shown, uh, and with, which, which was already uh, becoming clearer and clearer as we analyze the Hipparchus data and the Sloan data, etc., is that uh, we completely have to abandon the idea of the Milky Way being uh, a static, isolated, nice equilibrium system. Um, and it's clearly uh, 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 very much still a, a live system evolving. So we have these interactions with the Sagittarius dwarf, but also now with the Magellanic clouds. And you need to take these into account if you really want to understand uh, in detail what the structure of the Milky Way uh, looks like and how it uh, evolved uh, over the course of time. So it's become a much more um, uh, dynamical environment that we're uh, studying, which also makes it more difficult because you cannot uh, use the uh, equilibrium mathematical treatments that uh, were used a lot uh, in the past. You have to actually go to very sophisticated numerical simulations to understand uh, how the Milky Way was formed, how it evolves. Uh, but, uh, of course, at the same time, it's extremely interesting and, and really uh, learning a lot. But the picture has, has really changed very significantly, uh, and this has become extremely clear now with Gaia. And there was a, a press release, also kind of a news flap, recently about the galactic warp. I remember uh, 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, uh, someone first mentioned to me that the Milky Way was warped. And that was the first I had heard of it. <laughs> and, and now I think Gaia has helped us kind of solve uh, part of this mystery. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, so uh, this was work that was done by Eloisa Poggio and her collaborators in, uh, in, at the University of uh, Turin. Um, and they made a, a map of the, uh, of essentially of the shape of the Milky Way disk in the solar neighborhood. Uh, and then you can indeed see that it is warped. Uh, and what they were able to show is that the uh, that the that the warp itself, uh, the the way the the disk is uh, is warped, is actually moving around uh, the disk. So so the warp is not static, but the um, um, uh, the shape of the disk uh, changes, uh, and that's because this warp is actually moving around in, in azimuth. Um, and one of the ways that you can explain that is, again, the interaction with the uh, Sagittarius uh, dwarf galaxy. So as it orbits the Milky Way, it actually induces uh, this warp, uh, and the warp itself uh, processes then uh, around, uh, around the Milky Way uh, disk. Okay. So um, what uh, have you been affected uh, adversely by the pandemic and and uh, overall, what's been the biggest challenge uh, for Gaia? Uh, yeah, the, the pandemic certainly uh, affected us. So we had actually a big uh, consortium meeting planned for, uh, for early March uh, in, uh, in Heidelberg. And we, we have these meetings every year and a half or so where we try to bring uh, almost everyone in the consortium uh, together to, to discuss the work, discuss progress, but also to have a few beers, uh, socialize, etc. So they're very important, uh, but we had to cancel that one because the, uh, the the week before 
uh, Italian colleagues were told they could not travel anymore. And also the European Space Agency put in place uh, travel restrictions. So the meeting didn't really make sense anymore. And we switched to an online uh, version. Um, but it also rapidly became uh, clear that, uh, of course, uh, everyone in DPAC was uh, in, the, in the analysis consortium was going to be affected. Uh, having to work from home, uh, there's, of course, people with uh, partners working in uh, uh, in, in, in uh, healthcare, so they were extra stressed, uh, people with children. Uh, so one of the things we relatively quickly decided was to say, well, let's um, forget about the uh, target uh, release date for, for, the, for, the, for the next uh, release, just to give everyone the space to, uh, to focus on their own uh, well-being and not worry too much about uh, deadlines. Um, and uh, this means that the uh, release which we had hoped to bring out in September will come out later this year. Uh, but I must say I'm extremely impressed with all the work that was still done in these uh, in these difficult circumstances. It really it really shows the uh, the excellence of the uh, of the DPAC uh, team. Um, and then if we talk about the uh, challenges, um, I think uh, uh, in the coming years there are two big uh, challenges that we have. One is that the uh, although the Gaia data are uh, extremely uh, precise. Uh, and they will become more and more precise as we collect more data. It also means that the uh, effect of uh, the so-called systematic errors um, uh, becomes more and more uh, important. Uh, and this means that, uh, uh, for example, if we uh, measure the parallax to a star, um, it might be very precise, but it may be actually off from the, from the true value. Uh, and this is something that you really need to uh, characterize carefully in order to do the scientific analyses uh, on the data uh, correctly uh, later on. Um, and the control over these systematic errors is one of the big challenges that we have in the coming years. They're very small, but because we're always pushing the limit as scientists to, uh, to do, do the best we can with the data, this becomes an important uh, issue. And I think the other big challenge, maybe even bigger uh, than, than the business of the systematics, is how do we keep up the uh, motivation of the of the people uh, who have to work still for quite a while on uh, on the uh, data processing? Um, this is in an, envi an environment where um, you know inevitably uh, at some point the, uh, the the funding resources will uh, get diverted to other missions, uh, etc. Um, but we still we still have quite a number of years to go, and and keeping everyone motivated, keeping everyone happy. Uh, that is a that is a big challenge. So, in other words, even after you stop taking data, uh, you're going to be doing the analysis of this data for years afterwards, and then people will use it as a as a reference, uh, the same way they still reference Aparco's data. Yes, and uh, I I think Gaia will be the reference for for many decades uh, to come. Yeah. Okay, um, and final question. So. You didn't talk about this uh, too much, but uh, you mentioned uh, your doctoral work. But what uh, got you into astronomy? And uh, what uh, personally, why do you get up in the morning to do this on a day-to-day -day basis? I mean, I love it. You love it. Uh, but uh, just trying to give the listener a sense of what motivates you to uh, persevere with uh, astronomy. Um, yeah, the, I mean, what motivates me, uh, in particular working on Gaia, uh, is of course in the first place, uh, the interest in astronomy itself, 
um, but really uh, providing uh, a, a beautiful data set like Gaia's and then just watching uh, the colleagues all around the world uh, getting excited and doing fantastic science with it. That, that's, uh, that's actually the biggest uh, motivation. Um, and the reason I got into astronomy, uh, well, I was always interested in uh, some form of exact science uh, in, uh, when I was at school. Uh, and for a while, I wondered, should I do mathematics, physics, chemistry? Uh, and then in the end, I, uh, the, the last few years of school, I, I read a few uh, books that really got me hooked onto, uh, onto astronomy and decided to, uh, to pursue this study in, uh, in the Netherlands. Um, well, and that's, uh, that's where I still am. So, so uh, do you have a, a way that listeners can comment or contact you if they want to know more? They can send me an email. That's the, uh, that's the easiest way. Um, so the address is uh, brown and then at um, strw.leiden uh, followed by univ.nl. Uh, and as always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at uh, brucedormany.podbean.com or bdormany on my Twitter feed. And Anthony, thanks so much for being a part of the podcast today. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at bdormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM.